Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Mo Zafzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. Today, we have uh, a very interesting podcast with James Pomeroy, who's an economist at HSBC. And we are going to be talking about the booming digital economy. Uh, so uh, let's dial in James. So James, uh, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. Thank you very much for having me. Great. So um, the first question that I always ask someone new who's, who's come onto the podcast is, you know, give us your back, background. How did you, uh, how did you uh, sort of uh, uh, you know, come to HSBC? And uh, you know, what are your kind of key interests? Yeah, so I joined HSBC probably about 10 years ago now, but I joined originally as a placement student, so uh, making charts and, and downloading data and all of those sorts of things um, for uh, the multi-asset um, strategy team um, within research. And then I was lucky enough to come back and join that team sort of on a permanent basis after I finished university. And then I sort of worked in that side of things, so multi-assets um, sort of strategy for, for a couple of years and then realized that my real sort of interest was in the economics that backs that up and at that exact time an opening um, came up in our economics team and I moved across the office um, into that team and I've been doing it ever since with a job that sort of evolves on an annual basis depending on what's interesting in the world so really it's a job that's taken me and taken my research in a whole load of different uh, avenues of course this year focusing a lot on COVID but also a lot more on sort of long-term trends that are impacting all of our lives and the things that are likely um, to matter in the future. So I really enjoy getting stuck into those big picture topics um, that are likely to drive the global economy uh, in the coming years. That's great. In, in, we were just chatting a little bit earlier. One of the things that you mentioned was that uh, you, you spend a lot more time with, if you like, the real economy these days rather than, if you like, financial people like us. Um, uh, I'm just fascinated, you know, contrast, you know, the things that, that um, say, you know, real businesses worry about versus the, uh, the investment businesses. Well, exactly. It. If you speak to a, if you speak to a, a real business, so to speak, you know they're not necessarily so bothered about the ins and outs of a central bank decision or you know what's necessarily going to happen with inflation because they're setting inflation essentially. These are the guys who are setting prices. They don't necessarily um, care what the headline inflation rates are going to do or the ins and outs of those individual decisions. They, they, they these businesses want to know firstly the facts. You know what is happening um, in the economy, and secondly, what's going to happen. I mean, these big picture topics. You know the big sustainable. Um, trends that are happening in the global economy are really, really interesting, I think, for businesses um, all over the world. And hopefully that's something um, that we're providing them with a lot of the research that we're putting together. Okay, well, great. Thank you. So, um, um, you know, what's uh, your view, the HSBC view uh, for the global economy? Obviously, you know, most people are revising downwards their, their forecasts uh, for, for this quarter, given the kind of second outbreaks. Um, uh, you know, what, what's the, what's the HSBC view and also, um, how do you think about, uh, 2021? 
So, of course, in the near term, there's a huge amount of risks out there, particularly here in Europe and sort of growing risks um, in the US too with this pickup in, in COVID cases. Um, but it is worth pointing out that we are seeing outside of those two regions a bit of a better um, momentum in the data, particularly in those parts of the world um, where you've had the COVID numbers come off quite a long way. So in Latin America, things are not great, but they are steadily um, going in the right direction. In large parts of Asia, um, the same story um, is playing out there. And then, of course, in China, where the recovery is a little bit um, more sustained and, and, and clearly broadening out a little bit. So you've got this sort of really interesting global economy that's really multi-speed at the moment between you know, the fast-growing parts of the world, those parts of the world who are really um, constrained um, by COVID cases and, and, and more restrictions. So then when you take that going into next year, there's clearly likely to be a rebound in terms of those headline GDP growth rates. But we're still looking at a world where most likely we're going to see a, a, a global economy that is still smaller um, until the very end of next year than it was at the end of 2019. So the recovery is going to look really good in those growth rates, but it may not necessarily be um, so good in terms of levels. Now, there is, of course, the uh, big upside risk um, to all of that with the developments on the vaccine front, but there's challenges in getting those vaccines out to people, getting enough people um, vaccinated. That means we can open up the economies, so we can get that catch up. So while there's that clear potential on the upside, there's also a potential downside risk that one we can't get the vaccines out to people quick enough but also that there's a lot of people who have either lost jobs or businesses that have gone bust by the time we get there and those two things could trade off against each other next year so a really sort of multi-speed global economy is is, is at the core of a lot of our forecasts at the moment mm, interesting so um i, I think you, you make a very valid point that uh, the uh, covid unconstrained economies are you know uh, motoring away and obviously in Latin America, we've got, um, uh, I guess, summer coming, which you know, seasonality clearly has a as an impact on on COVID. Um, and then when, as and as we go into to Q one and Q two, when do you think we hit the, if you like, the maximum accelerator in terms of you know a, a, a kind of global synchronized recovery? It's hard to say with precision at the moment because we're not exactly sure which vaccines are going to be able to get into people's arms, so to speak, at different sort of times. So it's probably going to be further into the, into the second half of the year, maybe in the third or fourth quarter. So you need a few things to come together. You need the vaccines to be readily available and you need governments to be comfortable enough that they can relax restrictions, not just in their own countries, but also in terms of borders. And if you can do that, then you can get this real takeoff in terms of, in terms of consumer spending spending on services. But as I said, there is a risk at least that um, we, we get to that position in a, with a global economy that's got some vulnerabilities. And it could be that unemployment rates are higher. It could be that some businesses have, have failed to make it through to that point. And that's why there's a bit of a challenge at the moment in terms of both monetary and fiscal policy to try and keep the economy almost functioning um, and, until we get through to that point. If that does happen, then the second half of next year could be a pretty good one uh, in terms of uh, everything reopening and people trying to do some of that catch-up spending on all of the services that we've uh, that we've missed out on. So one of the themes, I guess, over this period has been, you know, um, uh, the man on street furloughed, or if they're working in entertainment restaurants, etc., furloughed. They've generally had good incomes over that period because of the furlough, haven't really spent it, given they don't need to sort of you know, take, uh, you know, trains and buses and so on and so forth. Uh, and savings rates, as we've seen pretty much around, uh, certainly in the Western world, have kind of skyrocketed higher. Um, 
what's your best guess? And maybe we can start delving into, you know, all things digital in a second. What's your best guess is where does that consumption actually find itself or that potential consumption find itself? Well, my, my guess is that a lot of it ends up in services as soon as people feel safe. And I'm quite encouraged by um, what's happened in the parts of the world where restrictions have been rela relaxed, either temporarily during sort of the European summer or in parts of Asia where there's a much uh, calmer sort of set of restrictions in place, or even in the most extreme scenario in New Zealand where you had social distancing um, taken away. And what you've seen in all those different scenarios is, is that people like doing stuff. My best example is how quickly people went back to rugby stadiums in New Zealand. Um, you will have seen the first weekend um, of matches after social distancing was taken away in New Zealand and was about the same time as the Premier League restarted in, in, in England. And you saw empty stadiums in England and you saw a packed Eden Park in Auckland um, because of people desperate to go and watch the rugby. And so the attendances were something like three or four times what they had been pre-COVID for some of these matches um, in New Zealand. And that fills me a bit of hope that people like doing stuff and I think having spent you know, eight nine months of this year and possibly longer by the time we get through to um, widespread vaccination there's a lot of sort of pent-up demand for a lot of things we may have taken for granted the simple things such as going back to the office um, or but then in the extre extreme you've got obviously going on holidays and going to gigs and going to sporting events I think all of those things there's pent-up demand um, where, where we should see um, some of that spending come now some of that may mean that there's a drop-off in good spending um, because a lot of the stuff that we've bought this year to cater for the, our, our new lives such as all the kettlebells and the home gym equipment and the extra monitors for your, for your laptop at home all of those things you don't need to buy them again so actually I think it's most likely that once we do get a recovery next year it's disproportionately in the service sector and disproportionately uh, in entertainment. Mm, that's a very very good point um that uh you know certainly so far that all that sort of spending on laptops and computer screens uh etc they, they probably have a, a life of at least five five to six years so uh you don't need to buy that twice as uh that's uh that's uh, absolutely absolutely the case um so let's sort of move then on to um uh you know, one of the uh or the, the topic at hand is this, the booming digital economy. Um, it's a note that you wrote in uh, in, in September, um, and um, you know the key headline and uh, headline that uh, we've been talking about at EFG is uh, the the pandemic accelerated some of the mega trends that were already uh, were already in place. Um, um, do, do you want to you know introduce the topic um, from your perspective? Yes, of course. I mean, the digital economy is something that fits that sort of remit. It's, an, it's a mega trend that was already sort of grinding away underneath. Um, all of us were steadily using digital technology um, much, much more, but it was sort of a slow grind higher. And we were likely to see over the course of the next 10 years, a whole load of um, more digital interaction. So that's in a whole load of different ways, be it in terms of consuming digital services, buying physical items online, um, possibly adopting in 
entirely new technologies in the space of things such as virtual reality. It's going to be using video conferencing. It's going to be working remotely. It's going to be a greater investment from businesses in terms of um, automation and in terms of robotics. And all these different sort of um, components make up the digital economy. And they were all increasing. And basically, as a result of the pandemic, almost every single facet of that has been accelerated. And what we're likely to see in the course of the next sort of 10 years and probably beyond that is even more of our economy going digital uh, in one way, shape or form. And I think um, there's a whole load of massive implications which, which we can discuss. Um, but I think it's a mega trend that really has been uh, turned on even more um, as a result of as a result of the pandemic. So um, you you bring up this idea of changing habits and uh, which I found quite actually quite fascinating in that, uh, you know, uh, uh, take myself for example you know i hardly wear a shirt anymore <laughs> you know it's a t-shirt or is a sweat top or it's uh you know uh, i can't even i can't even remember what my suit looks like uh <laughs> you know uh, so um it, you know obviously habits have changed you know quite uh, quite dramatically and and you reference um uh philippa lally et al um which is that it takes basically uh exactly 66 days to change your habits um, maybe you can kind of articulate that a little bit more because, because uh, uh, I mean, that's quite interesting. And certainly any of us who are in professional life know that, uh, you know, we're more likely to listen to a podcast now, more likely to, to um, uh, you know, to, to have a VC. Yes, exactly. I know. I think this is one of the fascinating parts of, of the pandemic and what it means for um, human behaviour. There's a whole load of things that the pandemic has meant we've had to do. You know, a lot of people who typically would never have shopped online, uh, a lot of people who never would have used VCs, a lot of people who'd never have listened to podcasts or used Netflix or any of these sort of digital goods and services, um, a lot of people would never have gone near them before. And disproportionately, and not everyone, but disproportionate number of those people who wouldn't have are in older generations. But actually what the pandemic's done is it's forced people to suddenly start, one, using these things for the first time, which starts to change some sort of consumer behavior. But also it means that some things you've had to do out of necessity, you start to think, well, why would I go back on doing this? And the best example from, from my perspective is me buying coffee beans and beer online. You know, I, historically, I never would have thought, okay, I'm going to keep up my, my beer supply in the flat from, from, from online retailers. But actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, when I could only go to the supermarket once a day, I didn't want to waste my one trip by trying to bring back um, you know, cans of beer, which mm -hmm. is quite a bulky item. And you couldn't get online delivery slots for the supermarket. So I started buying um, beer online. And actually, then after after you've done it a couple of times, you think, well, this makes a lot more sense. <laughs> and so there's a sort of, those sort of habits can easily get entrenched where people start to think, okay, I've had to change to doing this, but why would I go back? And actually, I think that's why as a result of the pandemic, the digital economy and the digital sort of consumption adoption rates are likely to be going up even more quickly um, than we had been expecting before. So I guess coming up to Christmas, buying toys on Amazon rather than going to Hamleys is probably going to be the, the, uh, the, the key driver this year, I suspect. Yeah, I'd imagine so. I mean, I, I was one of these people who for the last few years, what I've always done is, is I go around to one of the shopping centers uh, here in London and I wander around all of the shops and I find the items physically that I'd like to buy for, for friends and family for Christmas. And then I walk out of said shop and I add them all to an online basket and then order them to delivery rather than having to carry them around with me. Um, where so, so part of that transaction is now off this year, but, but the online sort of uh, browsing experience is something that could be quite interesting this 
this year. Now, do people enjoy shopping online for others as much as they find it easy to shop online for themselves? I'm not so sure. But again, there's probably going to be evolutions in, in the sort of shopping experience to try and make these things happen. And, and th- these are all just steady little trends. You have one Christmas where everyone has to do their Christmas shopping online. What happens next year? You know, Do people do the same thing or do people all go back to the shops? I think these sort of um, forced changes um, are particularly interesting because sometimes we don't go back to what we did before. No, absolutely. I think uh, the um, uh, <laughs> the uh, the previous podcast I I done I talked about uh, um, the uh, the uh, sort of uh, I guess home home exercise portals that have uh, have cropped up and there are quite a few uh, already um, and I and you know the, the big debate we have uh, in the office is you know who is actually going to go back to a gym um, and and when if ever um, because. Certainly the experience of, um, I, I, for example, uh, the Peloton bike, you know, if you bought a Peloton bike, it's an expensive piece of kit, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, are you going to want to go back to the gym given the experience from what I've seen? Uh, I think there's currently a three month waiting list for, uh, for a Peloton bike um, if you order one. But, um, uh, you know, you've got to wonder whether that, 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 um, shift has become permanent which i guess is what you're saying yeah exactly and i think things like leisure are quite interesting because in so many ways a lot of the leisure activities that we've quote missed out on um in in 2020 are things you'd really really want to go back and do and there are certain cohorts of the population who love going to the gym and will go back but for a lot of people the gym is a chore and do if you worked out a way to do that chore so to speak in a way that suits you better you've got the equipment at home you don't have to travel to the gym you don't have to um, necessarily queue for equipment etc etc well then why would you change and actually it could be that you know a lot of the um, activities that come back quickly are the things you can't replicate as easily at home. And that is, you know, restaurants, it's sporting events, it's gigs. Whereas the things you've, we've worked out ways of replicating uh, in one way or another, that they may find it quite hard um, to, to grow back as quickly because people have got an alternative that works for them. So let's talk about maybe some of the the things that we never thought we would ever do. You know, let's talk about entertainment, <laughs> for example. And, and obviously the big trend as we've been stuck at home is to go on play video games uh in particular um uh, you know tell us that do you think that's something now you know is going to be permanent or do you think it's a passing fad it's interesting, isn't it? So video game, I'm a, I'm a big fan of video games in, in many different ways. There's a lot of studies that talk about you know, video games being good for sort of cognitive development and reactions and a lot of sort of mental sort of agility, actually. There's there's, there's some suggestion for that, and they're quite good sort of um, uh, in terms of mental health, in terms of sort of something that's completely takes away your focus. And I'm a big believer in, in video games serving actually quite a useful purpose. Um, but the problem is that this this um, pandemic has accelerated people's dem- demand to find something to fill time. So I just think about you know, the moment in, in the UK when we're locked down, you can't go out and do many activities at the weekend. So you've got to almost fill the time with activities and video games are fantastic for that. But do they have the same appeal in 12 months, 24 months time? Well, probably not. So it, while I think there's a sort of 
um, these sort of industries have grown as a result of the pandemic. How sustainable that that is, um, is is up for debate once we can have alternative um, forms of entertainment. The one side of it that's very interesting, though, is the sort of competitive gaming. Now, this is a trend that was on the rise um, for for a long, long time, just creeping below the surface, maybe. And and the likes of um, video streaming and and, uh, YouTubers and these sorts of um, industries, to an extent, they've been growing really, really quickly during the pandemic. And actually, is there much more um, opportunity for these um, sort of names and for these companies to to make the most of their opportunity in the spotlight and to to grow their industry? So I think while all of us may be playing video games at home may be more of a passing fad um, because of the nature of the, of the lockdown. I think the opportunity for esports and competitive gaming is particularly striking and is something that where we could see uh, what was already a pre-existing growing trend um, really um, get accelerated as a result of this. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think that's quite interesting because I'm pretty certain the valuations of some of these gaming companies don't reflect the fact that we might go back to do something else in the summer uh, next year. Um, so I, I think that's certainly something that is worth watching very carefully and uh, uh, certainly, uh, c- certainly, a big, uh, certainly a big risk. Um, moving on to, um, uh, I, I guess, kind of more mundane things with respect to the digital economy and how it actually impacts um, uh, the economy and... Um, and, uh, and 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 kind of retail sales. What is your sort of best guess now in terms of you know how much is now done kind of online versus uh, in store, and, um, and and obviously there are some some uh, you know regional variations. There really are some some huge regional variation. There's certain parts of the world shop much more online than others, and the UK is a very online shopping friendly um, economy. So is um, the likes of Sweden. A lot of Northern European economies very sort of online. Um, China, of course, very very digital online economy growing out there. And then some other parts of the world which may be digitally savvy, um, the geography doesn't necessarily lend themselves as much to be as online. So the likes of the US or Australia, for example, are a little further behind. Um, and then some some um, parts of the world are just sort of not interested in digital shopping from cultural perspective. And the, the one that's so fascinating to me is Italy. Uh, in Italy, um, the average sort of young person, the average millennial in Italy shops online about as much as the average British or Swedish pensioner. Um, so there's a clear um, cultural aspect um, to some of this as well. You know, certain economies really do love um, shopping online. Now, these numbers are probably all going to go up though now if you take away the sort of italian example at least um i'm a big believer in demographic trends driving pretty much everything um and there's a there's a strong argument i think to be made in terms of the growth of a digital economy being so heavily influenced um by um, these demographic trends because you've got a cohort of people who are all under the age of you know, 40 maybe in the, in the, in the world who've grown up entirely online their education was online they've always had a smartphone since they've been a teenager. Um, They're so used to doing these things. And all surveys around digital adoption have these cohorts massively disproportionately using um, online technology. And it sort of increases, unsurprisingly, the younger generation um, you go. And what's essentially happening is this 
sort of a cohort of people and becoming a much, much bigger share of the global economy, both in terms of the number of them, but also in terms of their spending power. So you're naturally going to see more and more spending be diverted into the ten, uh, the trends and tastes of this cohort, which is going to be much more digital. And so even if you just had that trend happening, if nobody in the world changed their own habits, the share of um, digital consumption would double by 2030 if no one changed their habits. And so if you add to that the sort of kink that's happened as a result of the pandemic, where you've all sort of got a taste for all these additional things we could do digitally, it's quite likely that the trend is even um, stronger going forward. So our sort of estimate is we could easily get to 50% of retail sales um, being online by the time we get to 2030. Now, to some people, that sounds absolutely mad. But if you just go back 10 years and think about the things that we didn't have today or the things we used to consume physically, you know, we didn't have Netflix, we didn't have Spotify in the same way as we do now. Um, we, we, we used to go into shops to buy flights and holidays. You know, I remember you know, 15 years ago going into shops and sitting down with a paper catalog to pick a hotel and then you pay for that in inside a travel agent. That <laughs> seems mad nowadays. Yeah. And if you just fast forward into 10, 15 years time, what are we going to do um, then that we can't imagine now? And what are we going to look back on that we do today that we think is crazy? And I think actually these huge systemic changes in consumption patterns are far easier to happen than maybe we give them credit for. Mm. So, yeah, so I'm looking at, um, uh, you give an example of uh, how much of retail sales could be online in in, in the US. Uh, obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's a forecast. I think you... You described it quite well in terms of a kink. So, um, so basically, we've accelerated to a normal trend line of uh, online that would have taken us taken us to something like twenty six or twenty seven percent being online. What you're suggesting that we're probably around twenty five percent already. So we've kind of had close to a decade of uh, of move in in a matter of months. Yeah, exactly. And you just had to see what happened in the UK back in um, April. You saw an enormous jump in the share of um, purchases online in certain categories, so clothing and uh, and household goods and those sorts of things, all going up to about 50% of retail sales being online. Now, that was largely because the businesses physical businesses were closed. But it's very easy to imagine that those numbers could be 50% permanently. And actually, they could be much, much higher for certain items. If you take something like clothing, you know, if you get into, into place a good sort of return system, then clothes shopping online becomes extremely easy and is very popular amongst younger generations. And easily, those numbers could get up to 80, 90%. You know, there's some specialist items that we will, we will always consume in person, you know, sporting equipment and, and wedding suits and things like that. But but there's a lot of basic clothing items that people um, will be very happy um, to consume um, to consume uh, entirely online. And actually, there's a whole load of consumer categories that are likely to go more and more online. And I think the pandemic's opened up our mind to some other things. You know, I always think now about very, very small items um, that we typically would go and buy in the supermarket or we'd go to um, a pharmacy or, or, or so on. And we wouldn't even think twice about buying online. But you're almost forced into doing it um, during the middle of the pandemic and suddenly start thinking, well, actually, do I need to go to a shop to buy toothpaste? Do I need to go to a shop to buy toilet roll? What if all these things can be delivered? And actually, 
if the sort of societal shift is that you get these, it becomes much more commonplace um, to get these sort of items um, delivered, um, th- th- then easily these numbers could get above 50%. We've seen it in the past decade with razors, a big demand for online razors um, that, that's proved quite popular in large parts of the world. And that could easily play out across a whole load of um, categories, which right now we think would be crazy to buy online, but could easily become commonplace. No, absolutely. So um, let's... Um Let's move then. We've got this kind of huge, obviously, impact coming. I suspect you're right that, um, you know, uh, uh, economists, strategists, investment analysts are very uh, bad at figuring out exponential moves. <laughs> um, um, but, uh, you know, certainly we've seen we've seen that um, just in the last, you know, six, uh, six months, uh, six or seven months or so. But let's maybe sort of think about what it means in terms of economic impact um and uh you know what does it do to uh you know we always think of um uh you know digital as being very deflationary um any thoughts in terms of what is you know the sort of the economic impact the big macro changes that this is going to lead to yeah, just to quickly on the deflation side, I'm a big believer that all of this technological innovation is disinflationary. Um, I think it, it is in two sort of ways, and there's two channels. One is on the production side, which is pretty obvious, I think, to most people, that if you can automate processes and you can streamline them using technology, then the cost base is coming down and it's cheaper to produce goods and services, and therefore it's harder for prices to go up. And that seems to be something that's happened across large parts of the developed world for the past you know, a long, long time, last years and years. But it's also something that will start to impact emerging market inflation as well. As you start to see supply chains become much more digitized and much more streamlined, actually, it could act as a as a catalyst for much lower um, inflation in many emerging markets over the medium term. And I think that's particularly um, good news, um, particularly if you're a central banker in, in one of those countries. But the other angle, I think, is often um, sort of um, not necessarily misunderstood, but sort of ignored when thinking about the drivers of inflation. And that is price competition. And a digital economy and and a big jump in online shopping creates essentially perfect competition in terms of goods prices, because it's so much harder for a company to raise their prices when it's so easy for us to compare um, that price at any other retailer. And so actually, you can have all of the stimulus you like in the world, but as long as you're in essentially a perfect competition environment for a lot of goods and services, it becomes very, very hard um, for the prices of those things to go up. And you add to that, the, the cost of producing a lot of these things just doesn't seem to rise. You know, it's pretty telling to me as cost of a Spotify subscription has never risen. The inflation rate of one of the most in-demand products in the world is zero and has been zero for a long, long time. And the same thing's likely to play out uh, in many, many goods prices um, going forward. So my sort of working assumption for trend inflation in most most markets would be that goods price inflation is zero. And if you start with that, then you'd need your service price inflation to do a lot of heavy lifting to get um, your um, underlying sort of core inflation rate um, up up comfortably above 2%. That can happen in certain services where you've got a real shortage of supply. And I always seem, I always use the example of Ed Sheeran. If Ed Sheeran, particularly next year, wants to play a gig at the O2, um, he could charge whatever he likes and he'll sell it out. And the same will apply for big ticket sporting events um, or for the best restaurants or for the best hotels or you know, all of these things. People want to do them and they want to experience them. And there's no alternative um, to doing that. So they can charge what they like. 
And you could get inflation in those pockets of the economy, but they're such a small part of the CPI basket. I find it very hard to see how you could get headline inflation rates or core inflation rates in developed markets moving much above 2% in the medium term. I think unless something fundamentally changes, um, that low goods price inflation keeps our overall inflation rates down. So <laughs> it just reminds me of... Uh of the uh, the various uh, indices, the, you know, the cost of living expensive uh, or luxury, I can't remember what it was now, but it was either luxurious living. It always seemed to be having, you know, double digit inflation every year, um, which, which is exactly the point you're, you're making is that um, inflation is in those maybe more high demand goods. And as I guess, as you know, certainly the wealthier have, uh, have got richer due to these technological um uh, you know advances um you know i think that's uh, that that's certainly i think undoubtedly you know created this um this kind of wealth divide um um you in your report you 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 talk about that in terms of um automation and technology basically just goes to a few shareholders um um do you want to sort of um you know outline that <laughs> of course so <laughs> Obviously, technology is is generally a force for good, and technological improvement is a force for good. And I'm I'm underneath all of the uh, sort of pessimism around the global economy right now. I am an an, an eternal optimist about human progress, and you know, clearly that these improvements are creating a lot of good things for all of us. Um, but the biggest challenge is going to be in terms of jobs. And you start to think about it, particularly now, particularly in a world where businesses are having to restructure because they're faced with a huge drop in revenues, or you think about um, businesses who are really having to think about how many people they need to do a job, or can we get something done um, without um, as many people in close proximity to each other because of social distancing and so on in the near term. And it's really acting as a catalyst for automation of, of, of many sort of jobs. And that is a big challenge when you've had this enormous amount of demand destruction and job destruction um, today. And it's just accelerating that trend as well. So a good example is if you think about um, ordering a coffee in a coffee shop, there is so much greater incentive for a com coffee company today to invest in having a mobile app for you to order on because it minimizes a contact to another person. But what happens if people then realize that that is a better way of ordering their coffee? I mean, I very guilty of this for the past few years. It's you know six thirty in the morning. The idea of having to speak to someone to order a coffee is is, is daunting, and much much nicer to order it on an app and just walk in and collect it. And if that sort of trend catches on for people, then then do you need someone in to do the job of taking the orders of the coffee? And it's a very simple example, but it's one which you can start to extrapolate to a whole load of different jobs um, across the world. And then what we're seeing as well is at the moment, a lot of the jobs that are at threat of automation are those sort of medium skilled jobs. A lot of it's in customer service or a lot of it. Um, it is sort of requires some skill set, but it's one that can be automated. And actually what's happened so far is a lot of the low-skilled jobs haven't been automated because the cost of that robot is still higher than hiring someone to do that job. And I always use the example of a shelf stacker. It was my Saturday job when I was a teenager, and I always have to stress to people, even though it is technically a low-skilled <laughs> job, it is far harder to do than people give it credit for. It's back-breaking work and spinning those uh, tins around so they all face each to face the right way is, is a key skill. Um, but the, the point is that it's actually quite hard to build a robot that can do that job well, cheaply. 
and it's actually much cheaper just to employ someone to do it. And therefore, there's a risk going forwards that the two lines almost cross. So the improvement in automation and robotics means that the cost of the shelf stacking robot drops below essentially a minimum wage. And if that happens, then suddenly you get a whole chunk of low-skilled jobs that are taken out, and that creates a big problem on that low-skilled side of the economy. And it's much, much harder for low-skilled workers to upskill than it is if you were to see a similar thing happen for medium-skilled workers or for higher-skilled workers who can retrain into a different sort of job. So I think there's a big challenge out there um, for governments in the course of the next few years focusing on retraining and reskilling to enable people whose jobs are at risk from from automation to to find new jobs that aren't at risk of automation because there are a lot of jobs out there that aren't at risk from automation either because they can't be automated or we don't want to automate them and i said ed sheeran he can't be automated hairdressers we don't want to automate because that's something societally and we're not interested in and then you've got the impossible um to automate jobs such as plumbers and and uh, and, and so on so there's jobs that are always going to be needed is just whether we can provide the, the opportunities for people whose jobs are lost from automation to find those new jobs um, that are created. So um, what's the kind of general rule of thumb in terms of you know, over the next sort of 10 years, you know, how many of those, you know, how many, as a percentage, how many of those jobs, uh, you know, could be automated? It really varies a lot by the estimates and how people sort of um, put them together. But it's anywhere from sort of 20 to 50% of jobs are at risk of automation. Now, those higher numbers there are probably too high. It's probably somewhere in the sort of 20 to 30% range. Because it's also important to note that some jobs will be automated, but they won't be fully automated. And I always think about a lot of the jobs for example, my job, there's large chunks of it that could be automated, but there's large chunks of it that can't. And actually, there's a a sense that in a lot of high-skilled jobs or higher-skilled jobs um, that we could see um, more and more um, productivity gains as a result of automation, not necessarily jobs being lost, because you can spend more of your time on the sort of parts of the job that can't be automated, the ideas, the creative stuff, the presenting, those sorts of things. Um, and, And that could be good news, whereas it's the risk of those jobs that just disappear completely, which could be, you know, anywhere between sort of 10, 20, 30%. And those numbers are going to vary massively by country because those those economies who are heavily skewed towards manufacturing and agriculture, and they, those industries are far more likely to see um, jobs being automated than those jobs which are heavily, um, sorry, those countries where jobs are heavily concentrated in higher skilled services. So um, just thinking about the implication of, uh, of that, obviously, politically, we've seen some of that with, you know, would arguably, arguably say, you know, Trump being elected, you know, Brexit, um, uh, some of the discord that's, you know, that's going on in, in, in Europe, uh, principally is kind of far right getting a lot more popular um, as this divide continues. Do you expect kind of political volatility to to remain you know very high uh, while this is all happening? That's clearly one of the big risks, and I think what you're seeing is um, people who are displaced from the labour market or whose opportunities um, aren't as great. They're shifting in both directions, either towards the right or towards the left, and in this clear sort of rationale for both movements. And it means you're much more polarised. Um, uh, sort of political landscape. It's one that therefore creates greater uncertainty. And this is what we've seen in elections across the world in the past you know, five, 10 years. This big um, 
split in either direction. That means that the political challenges um, are greater. And any government who wants to try and tackle this is going to have to think about this root cause, which I think is the uh, lack of labour mobility. And the lack of labour mobility isn't in the old sense in terms of geographical mobility. It's in terms of skills mobility. And the focus of governments is going to have to be really, really um, so focused on skills. And that is, uh, I said it before, but I'm going to have to make that point again because it's so important. You've got to allow people to reskill. And I've used um, part of my own research, tried to look up, you know, let's pretend um, that I had to retrain and I needed to find a new job and I needed to become a, I want to become a plumber. Let's pick a job that's never going to be automated. If I wanted to retrain to become a plumber right now, it's extremely difficult, not just because of COVID, but trying to find a course that is cheap, um, that is flexible, that is close to me, that allows me to train. Those things that they're expensive, they're inconvenient, you would have to be out of a job to do them because they're often during the week. There's a whole load of issues in terms of allowing people to retrain. And that means that you've got people end up being tied into um, low skilled jobs or they get trapped in jobs or when they lose jobs they can't afford training there's a whole load of issues out there as i think if governments put a lot more effort into giving people that leg up when they were displaced then it could do a lot it could do a lot of um good in terms of um, alleviating the problems that this technological um replacement of jobs creates no absolutely um or become a chef, which seems to be a very popular, yes, <laughs> popular pastime at the moment. <laughs> um, Indeed, it's a, it's a chef's uh, chefs and podcasters, isn't it? They're the two uh, <laughs> yeah. two big takeoffs as a result of the of the pandemic. Absolutely, or, or TikTok stars is probably the other one I was going to say. Yes, uh, <laughs> that's it as well. Um, so um, maybe we can go to a little bit more of the kind of anorak. Uh, economics anorak part of this uh, of this uh, of this discussion um, in terms of kind of measurement of uh, the impact of digital on on the economy um, and and uh, obviously maybe on the on the sort of production side it's actually quite easy to 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 measure productivity it's you know relatively straightforward um, but obviously and, and certainly what we've seen during covid is the impact on the services sector. Um, what are your thoughts in terms of measuring that, uh, the digital economy on, on the services side? It's, it's really, really hard because a couple of things are going to happen. You're going to get a big shift out of the um, out of physical goods and into um, digital services. And therefore, capturing growth in real time becomes really, really challenging. And a good way of sort of um, putting this in very, very simple terms is let's assume um, we have an economy that back in the year 2000, all they did um, was produce CDs. Now, that economy for years and years and years was doing relatively well. There was an industrial production numbers were increasing because CD production was increasing. Now, in the year, let's pick a a date, 2008, 2010, um, someone in that country comes up with Spotify or they come up with a digital streaming service of some form or another. And so everyone suddenly over the course of the next 10 years stops buying the CDs and starts buying Spotify. Well, the industrial production of that country is now zero. But what does that mean? Does that mean that um, the, 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 the economic um, situation is worse? No, it doesn't. And that's one of the biggest challenges for, for me is a lot of the data that we love as economists and we're so used to looking at as economists is outdated. And it isn't actually telling you anything because 
within that data, there is a, a disappearing element of it. And the same is going to be true in industrial production data, manufacturing production data. It's going to be true in commodity prices as well, because you know you, these digital services require um, less commodity prices. Now, there's obviously market adages that, you know, Commodity prices tell you a lot about the global economy. I, I can't see how that's the case in a digital in a digital world. And then, of course, you're going to see it happen and potentially in consumer spending data as well, because you know you're not going to have those same things um, being bought that are captured as easily within the retail sales data, because you know, this shift in consumer patterns means that the the statistics offices may not be picking up where our money's being spent as easily. So this big shift in consumer patterns has creates a real problem for us uh, in terms of measuring the economy in real time. What's the solution? <laughs> it's really, really hard. I think there's a couple of things you can think about. I'm a big fan of thinking about the data that isn't impacted by that. So there's a couple um, economic data points I think are particularly valid. One is labor market data is less affected by this. There's a clear driver in various directions as we've just talked about, but labor market data is still useful in terms of telling us what's happening in the economy. It's not affected by this mismeasurement problem, but also credit growth is a pretty good measure of what's happening in the economy. Um, I'm always sort of struck by what happened in Sweden in the sort of, uh, in the last sort of five years or so, you know, the Riksbank had negative policy rate because inflation was low. And the GDP data was sort of pretty good. But if you look to any other underlying measure of what was happening in Sweden, credit growth, house prices, consumer confidence, business confidence, that economy was growing at a rate that I don't think any of us could even imagine a developed market could have done during that time. It could have been anything, 5 6% a year growth in Sweden quite easily um, during that time. But it's all driven by digital services. The Swedish economy is fantastically good at generating a lot of very good tech companies companies and a lot of money um, sloshing around and, and a lot of jobs being created and high value jobs being created. But because everyone was so focused on inflation, there's an expansion guys policy rate to minus half a percent and actually completely missed the point that this was a massive boom in the economy. You put fuel on the fire and you pump up house prices because obviously what are people going to buy in a low interest rate environment um, in a strong economy? Whereas if you'd focused on credit growth, you'd have seen this was an economy that was red hot. And is that's not just that's not sort of driven by this mismeasurement of output or consumption or any of these things um, that I think is likely to affect the data in the in the coming years. It's also going to be interesting to look at a lot of the um, new data that technological innovation creates for us. I think it's fascinating. Um, this year has been a really good year for economic economists finding new data sources. You know, the likes of Google's mobility data is economists' favorite tool at the moment, and that may not be as useful um, in the course of the next um, couple of years, but it's a great insight into how we can use live data um, to track the economy. Um, we're going to have to start using a lot of Google search data. We're going to have to use a lot of um, these sort of high frequency indicators, I think, are going to be particularly useful in terms of tracking the economy as we have to move away, I think, from this focus on industrial production, goods trade data, and of course, um, GDP itself. So I think all of these um, indicators are having less value today um, than they have, have had previously. You talk about, uh, or you talked about, about um, uh, I guess, your data science, uh, your data science team. Um, uh, what sort of things, obviously you, you touched upon them just a moment ago, what sort of things uh, are they looking at? So credit card transactions, I guess HSBC has a huge um, you know, 
data bank of of, of digital data. Yeah, we're unfortunately not able to use as much of that as as we'd like. But I think a lot of these sorts of data points, and we're saying, as I said about this, Google data is a great example of it. If you can anonymize the data in a certain way and release it in almost real time, we can get a great sense of what's happening in the economy. And it's fantastic. If you take this situation right now, so we're in mid-November, and you've got a lot of data in Europe that's tanking essentially in terms of the um uh it's a lot of data is tanking in terms of the short-term economic activity data in europe and that's because of all the lockdowns that came into effect on you know the end of end of october and early november here in the uk so that data is already telling us that activity numbers in the course of the last month have fallen away by you know three four five percent we don't know exactly where it is but it's a big drop in in, in november you know huge numbers so far but we won't get that in official data until January. And actually, we're in a, such a, a dy- dynamic time in terms of the global economy that that data is so valuable compared to the historical data. So if the timeliness is super useful. It's telling us what's happening in real time. That's more useful for policymakers. It's more useful for economists. It's more useful for corporates. Um, and actually, it could this pandemic could be heralding a sort of a, a better search for this new data. I, I, I sort of worry that we're going to go back in the end of next year or something in a post-COVID world and be, excited about finding out about what has happened in the economic activity data two months ago. It's going to seem like years ago um, by the time this this short-term data we're using today are less valuable. So I think what will happen in the course of the next couple of years is more and more of these short-term high-frequency data points will be developed and it's going to have to be using anonymized data, of course, but it's fascinating how how, how much progress has been in that that space um, as a result of the pandemic. Mm. I guess, um, you know, in the cases you, you show that Google owns the data or a lot of it, um, do you think we might end up have to paying for it or do you think they'll always give it for free? It's interesting, actually. It's, it's sort of valuable data that they, they they obviously could do whatever they like with. And if they opted to start charging for it, then I'm sure there'd be, there'd be people who'd be interested in paying for it because it's extremely valuable um, data. And we've seen this happen across all sorts of data providers um, in the course of the pandemic as well. A lot of high-frequency data providers have, 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 have got a valuable asset nowadays. And I think that's that sort of thing is extremely useful. Um, but it does raise a sort of other interesting point around sort of data and, and who's paying for it and those sorts of things. I'm always, um, always think about Google Maps as a great example, right? Of this is a, a free good and a free good and service for the uh, for the consumer, um, but it's actually paid for is sort of inadvertently by advertising, and someone's essentially paying for it. Google gets sort of a double win; they have the data, they have the advertising revenues, um, but the consumer wins. Actually, the consumer wins from having that free um, free service, and then you could end up getting into a scenario where further down the line, there ends up being a, a way in which our data is collected and used and, and the services we're getting where everyone is actually better off and I, I would argue that google maps is a great example of that where the the creation of it makes everyone better off google's better off advertisers get good advertising space and the consumer gets a free excellent map service and it could well be that the data um, that's collected going forwards is is part of that but the consumer will win by having a good service um, to go alongside it mm, it's very interesting isn't it um it kind of begs a question uh, I'd spent earlier in my career a couple of years at the Treasury and I used to wander over to the uh, Central Statistics Office <laughs> to get some data whenever it was, uh, whenever we needed some. Um, but um, the, the, but that was owned by government. 
Um, and this data is not owned by government. Um, any sort of thoughts around that? Because it's, in some respects, it's, um, you know, I guess it's quite dangerous, right? That, um, you know, the whole point of government having those statistics and being able to give them to everybody uh, to, to, to measure, um, you know, in this digital world, it doesn't happen. No, and it's interesting that actually, you know, the people, the biggest consumers of economic data are probably people who live and operate within um, financial markets. And there's a, unfortunately, there's a limit of how quickly we can learn what's happening in the, in the economy in real time from those um, government statistics. Whereas if private data is able to step in in one way, shape or form and provide that useful information, um, then I think that's, that, that, that's good news. And of course, there's clear risks around, you know, a control of that data, who owns that data, Etc. But if they can be controlled for, like they appear to be in the numbers that are that are hitting the hitting the news wires and all of our charts um, this year, then I can see that as a very good thing because it's a there's clearly a, a, a gap now in the market for high frequency economic data, and and if that's provided by by a private company, then I think that, that I'm okay with that. I think it's all about getting the information out there, and it goes back a little bit to what I was saying about price competition and the is the spread of information being disinflationary. Well, in this case is a spread of information that allows us to make better decisions because we're going to know in real time what's actually happening rather than guessing based on an indicator that's coming out in two months time let's move then on to some of the big policy challenges i guess this is one of them but um in terms of i suspect that over the next couple of years given that um uh you know government um uh you know governments have had huge deficits huge amount of debt that at some point needs to be uh clawed back um uh and obviously the big digital companies have been good at uh sheltering uh their their, their profitability uh from the tax man uh, obviously, this is um, uh, you know a big theme, and I suspect is going to be addressed. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? It's it's clearly going to be a huge thing, right? As as more and more of our consumption goes digital and it's harder to trace where it's being spent and where it should be taxed, there's going to have to be much more international cooperation on this front. And you're seeing the OECD being playing a big role in this, right? To try and adapt tax systems to try and make sure that the these companies are paying their taxes in the right places. And it's going to require international cooperation. Um, but it, it's a it's a growing challenge because it goes back to what I was saying about measuring where the spending is or measuring where the production is, but it's even harder to measure um, all of these different, um, where, where the consumption was and where the tax should be paid. And that in itself is, is a big challenge for, for governments, but it's just going to have to require much more international cooperation. And it may well be um, that it's the, the international organizations who have to take a lead on trying to tie the world together on the on this front. One of the one of the points you make is robot taxes. How do you tax a robot? <laughs> yeah, I'm not actually a fan of it. I mean, it's one of those policies that's often thrown around where you say, okay, if you're going to build more robots and take away jobs, let's tax the robots. But you know, the argument is, of course, that investment in automation is a huge productivity gain and it's, a, it's an enhancement and it's a step of human progress. And I'm not necessarily sure we should be taxing human progress. So uh, is, is these, ideas, these ideas and these sort of policy tools are going to be you know, thrown around a lot, I think, in the next few years, because some of these big problems that a more digital economy creates, you know, this rise in income inequality, the loss of certain jobs, this tax issue, you know, all these different things are going to start opening up more and more um, detailed discussions about some 
big, interesting uh, types of policy that governments across the world can put into place. So um, obviously, lots of sort of tech stuff going on, um, uh, yeah, explosion in data centers and cloud. We've got 5G, you know, coming <laughs> coming up, which is obviously going to be huge. Um and, uh, you know, uh, I was thinking just the other day, I was talking to my wife, kind of fed up again of the Wi-Fi going down or you know, staying staying sort of inconsistent. You know, we long for maybe, you know, a 5G world where we're always connected and it's the fastest we can get. Um, uh, what do you think kind of the productivity gains will be when, when we move to that type of world? And I guess it's going to take three or four years, five years maybe, but... Um, any thoughts of um, uh, of the economic impact of that? I, I think it's I think it's a fascinating space, and what I think the pandemic is going to mean is that governments all over the world really realise the importance of digital infrastructure. Yeah, the, the, the economies who have done best um, in the pandemic are those who have been able to adapt to a digital world much more quickly. It's meant they've been much more resilient. Um, you saw this in the likes of Sweden, where a third of people worked from home two years ago. So actually having an economy that can tilt very quickly um, to, to adapt to that is very, very easy. And it makes your economy so much more resilient. Whereas in the many emerging markets, um, you didn't have um, the same ability to do that. And therefore, you had a much um, faster spread of the virus. and You had a much greater um economic implications um, coming from lockdowns. And I think that actually that as a, as a, as a case study will mean that a lot of um, governments across the world will see investment in digital technologies as, as a top priority um, in the next few years. So you say, you know, 5G and so on um, coming in the next few years, I think there's a good chance that those timelines um, get amplified. Um, the implications, I think, are fascinating, but much more so in the emerging markets than in the developed markets. And, you know, here, you know, sat in London, I have a relatively decent most of the time, you know, internet connection and having 5G will be a benefit for the, you know, once or twice a month it drops out. But in reality, it's a bit like the shift towards a smartphone. You know, when we got a smartphone um, here in the here in the UK, for example, the main advantage to me was being able to check, check the football scores more quickly, you know, <laughs> out and about, rather than anything sort of substantially um, productivity enhancing. Because I already had a connected laptop in in my in my in my bedroom, um, where I could access all of the information that I needed previously. Whereas I think in the emerging world, you've got this big leap from sort of very, very low levels of connectivity to very, very high levels of connectivity. And that big leap, I think, gives you an opportunity to improve a whole load of underlying economic fundamentals. You know, education rates can be higher. Healthcare quality can be higher. You can have all of these sort of fundamental building blocks um, of the economy can, can really be supported. And actually, it could be a transformational story in terms of lifting potential growth rates uh, in some of the poorest um, parts of the world. And so I'm massively optimistic about the power um, of technology to help to lift um, growth potential in, in the emerging markets, particularly um, the, the, some of the poorest countries in the world. And actually that access to digital information could save you know, millions of lives. It could improve the quality of millions of lives um, all over the world. And I think it's something that, again, is possibly underestimated um, when thinking about long-term potential growth rates um, in some parts of the world. Mm, no, that's a very, very good point. I, it reminds me of, uh, you know, uh, I guess a, a popular trend uh, this year has been obviously GP, uh, you know, GP services on, on an app. Um, and, uh, you know, you can just imagine if you're in a you know, relatively poor country, being, not being able to have access to healthcare, but being able to talk to, 
you know, amazing doctors in, in the U S or, or, or in Europe, um, you know, from, from a hospital in, you know, uh, in Africa or, or, or in India. Um, I think that's, uh, uh, exactly. Powerful. And you're seeing a similar thing on the education front as well, just the access course, to yeah. online courses and online degrees and all of these things that gets created and what this does for human capital stock in, in these, in these parts of the world, what it does for the opportunities for people and the types of jobs um, that are able to grow in the, in these parts of the world, I think is a fascinating game changer. Um, that happens essentially the second you put a, a connected mobile phone in someone's hands mm. now, e- education is um I'm, you know, at some point i'm going to do a dedicated version of education because i think uh, there's some very interesting things uh, you know uh, and, and whether you know even universities potentially get displaced as uh, come i don't know google now have got their own kind of online courses and accreditations um but uh you know uh, and and obviously the points you made earlier in terms of being able to upskill or, or laterally uh, skill um, is going to be quite critical going forward if uh, if people are going to stay employed. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a fascinating topic. And it's, those are the things you just mentioned are key to it. And the fact that we can all easily access learning in one way or another, either formally or informally, I think is quite interesting. The amount of people in this uh, in 2020 who have learned a new language online or who have learned coding or have learned how to edit videos or any of these sort of skills, which are more and more useful today, today than they ever have been, I think is, is, is fascinating. And none of these people have done this going to university or school and uh, it's shown the capability for, for digital learning very very clearly this year and it's something that's only going to um, become more pronounced in the coming years yeah no absolutely i think um uh learning to cook um my my wife keeps on keeps on shoving various different things in front of my face <laughs> saying right okay bat time you learn how to cook properly but um <laughs> the, uh, um so letting secrets out so the um <laughs> So I guess the the last expression of digital and something that's obviously captured the imagination as people have been at home has been uh, digital and cryptocurrencies and uh, and Bitcoin. Um, any sort of I guess high level thoughts as to the kind of general direction and uh, how do you think central banks are going to uh, tackle I guess in an informal economy that could disrupt the formal economy. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating subject. And um, clearly, when, when Bitcoin's prices rise, there's a lot more attention on it rather than when it's falling. But uh, we've argued for some time that the underlying technology of all of this that's, that's been created from the likes of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies uh, is something that central banks across the world can take on board. And there's a whole load of pros and cons around Bitcoin and private cryptocurrencies. But I think if you're a central banker, you're starting to think, okay, what is the fundamental um, reason that we exist. And it is to provide a universally accepted and accessible means of payment. Bitcoin is currently not universally accepted, but it is sort of universally accessible. So where could a central bank bridge that gap? And the point is here that cash is not universally accepted, universally accessible. It's universally accessible, but not necessarily universally accepted in some parts of the world. And so what you're going to see, I think, in the coming years is a greater discussion from central banks about how they can build their own digital currencies to essentially be a platform um, where um, a a sort of digital version of cash exists. And that digital version of cash will 
possibly transform the way we think about monetary policy, about the financial sort of system. It's almost certainly going to mean far more efficient um, sort of payments within within any part of the world. But to make, it's very hard at this stage to make concrete conclusions about what those implications will be because it's is so much of this comes down to the design of these central bank currencies, what technology they use, what qualities they have. And I think we're going to see a lot more on this in the coming years. So there's investor interest in Bitcoin, but I would suggest there should be even more investor interest in central bank digital currencies, because these are the things that fundamentally change the way we think about um, the, the financial system, whereas I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case with something like Bitcoin. No, I think that's, uh, I think that's absolutely right. I think, um, I'm pretty certain that most central banks are going to come up with their with their version um, of a, of a, of a cryptocurrency, um, maybe called I don't know. We've got to think of alternatives to the euro or alternatives to the pound, the crypto yeah, pound. <laughs> it's the hard bit, isn't it? It's coming out of a catchy name that takes off. I mean, Sweden's Riksbank is the furthest ahead with all of this, and they're calling theirs the e-krona. Um, yeah. But I think it'd be quite boring and repetitive <laughs> if everyone just calls them the, the e-pound and the e-euro. It gets sort of a bit boring. So someone's going to have to come up with some cool names from somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's where Bitcoin was actually quite, quite innovative. Yeah. Yeah, you could just buy exactly. the naming rights uh, for it. Um, yeah, central bank marketing department is going to be a growth area, <laughs> yeah, I think. Absolutely, great. Um, so, um, James, uh, well, thank you very much for uh, for a fascinating uh, discussion on all things uh, digital. Uh, obviously, huge implications, um, uh, you know, and particularly accelerated dur during COVID. Um, and um, I'm sure. We'll love to have you back on again to delve into some of the other really important topics that you've, um, you, know, you know, you've written about, uh, you know, um, the so the outlook for cities in a post-COVID world and what that means for uh, for the global economy and uh, and uh, and how and uh, you know residential and and commercial real estate. Uh, maybe that's prob probably something that uh, we hopefully get you on to talk about soon. Yeah, fantastic. It's been a pleasure and uh, always happy to come back and talk about any of these exciting big picture topics that are, that are changing the world. Great. Well, thanks, James. Thank you very much and keep well. Thank you very much. Again, very fascinating. Uh, lots and lots of things to take in there. I suspect I'll probably uh, replaying this podcast a couple of times so I get everything down. Uh, again, thank you very much uh, for HSBC and, uh, of course, James for joining us. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again next week. <laughs>